Welcome to Daring to Suck. I'm your host, Grace Askew, a veteran musician, songwriter, recording artist, and road dog who has been living and breathing my craft for over 15 years. Each episode will dive deep into what it truly looks like to be a working artist, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Come roll along with me, tumbleweeds. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to episode one, season one. Um, I know that I posted on my Instagram, which in case you're new to me in general, um, I have more of a presence on Instagram, I would say. It's just my name, Grace Askew, spelled like askew. And um, on there, I posted a poll, would you rather hear my artist journey or my sobriety story? And after I uh, ended up going through my entire, you know, quote unquote sobriety story, because that definitely won in the poll, I decided it's actually just my artist, my artist journey in general. And I think that's going to be a great direction for this entire first season of the podcast is just to interview a lot of different artists on their own journey, uh, basically their hero's journey to getting to where they are now as an artist you know, the triumphs and the trials and everything in between the nitty gritty of what it takes to uh, just survive mentally and um, spiritually <laughs> as an artist and to thrive on top of that. And I think to really fully illustrate just who I am as a person beyond being an artist, I think I'm going to start from the very beginning. So I like to call myself a highway child. Meaning, I, I grew up really close to one of the main corridors of America, I-40, Interstate 40. I could hear it from my bedroom window when it was open at night sometimes, and the wind blew just right. I could I could hear it, like the wafting sound of semis, tires humming, and that kind of became my lullaby or like a hymnal of sorts. So this sense of um, wonder developed from just hearing where all these people were traveling to. I wanted to go wherever they were going. And I knew that this normalcy that I had in my own life, I grew up in a very stable um, home with, you know, um, just a very um, placid, um, bucolic kind of atmosphere. Just where I grew up, there were gravel roads. We had nothing had been built up yet. So um, it was the country back then. But now, of course, it's been built up with a mall and this is very suburban. But I grew up in a very normal, stable environment, and I just something in me knew that I, in order to create an interesting story for myself, I was going to have to go out on my own. And some sort of calling from a very early age was instilled in me that that I knew was going to require me to be alone and discover it on my own, on my own terms. So throughout my childhood into middle school, um, I was definitely more of a loner. Um, shy, sensitive, you know, go figure. I'm a songwriter. I'm an artist. Um, and I just could feel something was different about me and I didn't, I wasn't comfortable with it ever. So the only way I knew to deal with it was to turn to music. I always felt like when I could go to my room after school was done and I just lock myself away and create in that little space, I just felt like I had control over my life. I had a friend to turn to. I was not alone in the world anymore. And I was teased a lot in middle school. I would just always dress very differently and express myself through through the way I dressed. And um, and I was definitely into different things than my friends. And so I struggled 
to accept myself. And I just felt so accepted when I could just go home and I could just write my weird little poems and songs and, and just string words together however I pleased. And it was just the most freeing, wonderful experience. Um, so that was the biggest gift that music gave me through those early years that kids, you know, we can be all, we can be so mean in those early years, but I, I'd survived because of music. And it wasn't until I picked up the guitar at age 13, I'd been taking piano lessons and was kind of being dragged to them basically. Cause I just didn't like the teacher and it just wasn't an instrument I could fall into as easily and enjoy as much. But once I picked up guitar at 13, it was like all those formative years of writing little short stories and poems. Um, it just clicked because all of those interests and creative outlets I had before could be now put onto an instrument and it just all, everything made sense once 13 came around, which is definitely a pivotal age to find something like that in your life. It's definitely, it was a great age to pick up guitar and, um, I'm very grateful for that. All throughout high school and even going into my first year of college, I just was like, I don't want to say a hermit, but I just, I really enjoyed my alone time creating much more than socializing um, and being out and about because I just thought it was a waste of time. I was kind of intimidated by the social scene. So by the time I got to college and I went to college, mind you, in New Orleans, party Mecca. So all my friends were going out, um, with the few friends I had. And I was just sit, like sitting there in my dorm room. I remember locked, locking myself up all the time, staring at my son's studio record poster that I got from, I, I went, you know, went back home for the holidays to Memphis and took a tour of Sun studio. My life was changed. Basically went back to New Orleans, finished out my first year. And after experiencing that taste of like the Memphis music history in Sun studio, I decided what am I doing down here? Like twiddling my thumbs, reading Johnny Cash bio and Elvis's bio and learning more and more about Memphis and falling back in love with my hometown. So all that's to say, I dropped out of college, um, having gone through kind of a tumultuous, lonely period. Like I was just really depressed my freshman year of college and felt really lonely and lost. And I took it as a sign that my, my sweet cousin Ada had a spot available in her apartment in the heart of Midtown Memphis. And I, I was like, I'm doing it. I'm going to drop out and move to Midtown and, um, I'm going to play music. And my parents were supportive of it. Thank God I have, you know, such cool parents about that. So, um, I was living above my 90 year old grandmother living with my cousin and having, I started to have like the time of my life. I really felt like once I got into, um, that this season of my life, like I found, I was starting to find my kind of people and my kind of people just so happened to be barflies. You know, I was discovering, um, just the, the nightlife of Midtown I fell in love with because the most, most of the gigs in Memphis are dive bars. It's you play for, for PBR and tips and it's chain smoke air. You know, it's, you can smoke in all the bars and still to this day, pretty much you can. Um, and I freaking loved it. I freaking loved it. I fell in love with Memphis so much. And all of the songwriters, namely this bar, Neil's on Madison Avenue. I like very shyly called up the, the, the sound guy at Neil's. And I was like, Hey, um, I, you know, I'd love to play. Do you think you can let me like play like two songs in between the songwriters circle? And he just, 
it was so nice. And I started doing that. And once I got my foot in the door there, it was like, I felt at home. I've, I'd found this family with all of these artists and my voice was heard and I could really like test my chops and improve because there were so many really talented songwriters at those, at those, um, writers nights at Neil's. What also came along with this is I was just thrilled by being a single 19 year old girl living her life in the city. Um, you know, able to, you know, by the time I got to 21, I was drinking and I was never the kind to like get fake IDs or anything. I just waited till I was 21. Um, and going out pretty hardcore, like four or five nights a week playing gigs. And if I wasn't playing a gig, I'd go see my buddies in the bars playing gigs. And most gigs started at like 11 o'clock at night and you didn't, you know, then you partied after the sets were finished. So you were partying till sunrise a lot of the times. And, um, I was working across town as a receptionist and, um, you know, dragging, dragging my ass out of bed, just bloodshot eyes. Just a lot of the time I looked, I'm sure like a mess and smelling like cigarettes. I can't believe that, um, yeah, that job even happened. But anyway, um, I, I, uh, I was really finding myself and my word kind of, I guess, got out about my sound and just who I was. And I started performing, um, more and more, you know, just kind of slots at different venues and, Pete Matthews caught word of me and we started cutting my first EP at Arden Studios in 2007. And um, I was just falling in love with all of the writers like Bob Dylan and Tom Waits were just my biggest influences. And so in order to, so I thought in order to be a valid artist, I had to live like them. And I was uh, just going through, you know, Bukowski books and just, I feel like it's a very cliche phase for an artist to go through, but I went through it like hardcore for like eight years. Um, so I, I started to play more with the band and I was trying to get my, my sound together. So I just was trying to find myself and also trying to find myself through relationships and lots of them weren't so great. Um, it was through fellow songwriters and, you know, heavy drinking nights and just, you know, um, just not healthy situations, not healthy relationships that I should have been in. But I, I, I wanted it so bad because I didn't see it as dysfunction. I just saw it as like the artist's life, you know? And I, I just like craved it. I, I wanted like the, the madness and like the, the, the late nights and just the wildness of it because I'd never, ever lived like that until I was 21, like 21, literally. And it wasn't until my first heartbreak happened after a couple of albums. Um, I cut two EPs at that point. This is in 2009. I had cut my Wasted Lipstick EP at Ardent and then Hawthorne EP. I think, where did I cut Hawthorne? I think also at Ardent. I'm totally blanking out on that. But anyway, by 2009, I had gotten into a relationship with a songwriter and it just broke my freaking heart. And so it just, it was that first real hardcore heartbreak. And so I really, that was the point where I saw myself I had no appetite. All I wanted to do was just be around people constantly. I did not want to be alone. I was at the bars constantly, just bringing my own bottles of vodka to these beer-only bars that I had, you know, befriended the bartenders. And um, I just, my friends, quote-unquote friends, and and my family had become the bars. And um, it 
it was lonely, even though I thought I had formed these friendships. It was like just good time friends. And I, I still appreciate so many of those people in my life that were partying with me because they, they just appreciated who I was at that time. They didn't judge me for being self-destructive. Um, I just, I needed to just self-destruct a little bit after that heartbreak. And my best songwriting, honestly, I feel like came out of that really dark, um, year, my 2010 album, until they lay me down to rest. I decided to produce myself and did it at a house at my pedal steel player's house. And he played banjo on it. And it's just 10 songs of like pure raw heartbreak and drinking songs. And, you know, I had been started, I'd just, I'd started to really heavily get into, um, solo, like long tours on the road for weeks at a time. I would go down to Texas a lot. I just needed to just wander. I know that's so freaking cliche, but it's true. Like I wanted to be alone. I wanted to tear off and be mysterious and like, just be just not know what was going to happen because I just needed to like feel alive and being on the road made me feel alive. And I was listening. I discovered at that time, like Towns Van Zant and Guy Clark were introduced to me by a friend, Blaze Foley, Lucinda Williams, all of those like heart wrenching, just guttural, fantastic songwriters. I fell in love with that that lifestyle as well. So I was trying to keep pace. And from the beginning of my career, I felt like I had to keep pace with the boys. So I lived as hard as the boys. I, I drank at pace with them. I just chain smoked like a guy. You know what I mean? Just like, I, I don't give a fuck. Like, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm an artist. I'm like, I can, I can deal with it. I can be hang with the boys. I can drink as hard as them. Like, that's how I felt like I had to legitimize myself. I wasn't hanging around many females at this time. And looking back, my Lord, did I need that. I needed more estrogen in my life. <laughs> I had a fantastic band, no doubt. And um, a lot of incredibly talented songwriters around me, but it was all men. And um, I just wanted to fit in, you know? And I think after this this 2010 album happened, I just kind of went, I went through so many relationship tumultuous times again, like I was going in and out of, um, just really unhealthy, like low self-esteem kind of relationships. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's like those kinds where you think if I could just be with this person that I'll be happy. And it's like, that's no, no, no grace. Like you need to be happy first. You need to be just completely loving being single and loving your life as is. And then you will find that right person just without even trying. And that's how I met my husband now, Jack. Um, that's, that's down the, that's down the, the storyline. Um, so 2011, 2012, I was like back and forth. I cut more albums, two full albums. Um, and around 2012, I'd like split off from this on and off, on and off again relationship that had been going on for four years and was a really talented musician. Um, and getting, really into the Delta blues scene and like hanging out in the juke joints down in Clarksdale and just falling in love with my, my roots, like the music of my roots. Um, I'm a sixth generation Memphian and a lot of, there's like an ask you Mississippi. So there's a lot of Mem uh, Mississippi roots to my family. Anyway, that was just, you know, part of that culture. A lot of that culture is like you're drinking forties and you chain smoke and marble reds. And that was just, I loved it. You know, that was just like such a huge part of my identity. It's like, Without those vices, I don't know 
at that point in my life, if I could have seen myself as an artist without like living the way I was living, it's crazy to say. Um, so I'd run off to New Mexico and, and, and met someone there. And, um, I was supposed to go back home, but I met a guy and I stayed in Chama, New Mexico, this little tiny train town up on the border of New Mexico and Colorado. And those are some of the most magical times of my life. Just the majesty of the mountains up there. And, and again, he was the owner of a saloon. So a lot of drinking was going on, a lot of moonshine, a lot of cigarettes, American spirits were my jam, the yellow box. <laughs> Anybody else know what I'm talking about? And, um, lots of gigs. I was gigging always, you know, always playing. And my writing was not happening that much. I would write every now and then. At that time, I just, I wasn't putting in much effort to my writing, but I, I, I was definitely running away from everything that had happened in Memphis and I needed to change. So that, that, that's what trauma gave me. And around that time, I was just, I was so lost. I felt like I was, I'd been coasting, you know, and the booze was helping with the coasting because it just numbed me out to what was really needing to happen in my life and in my career to get better and to just improve and to further, you know, get, get those damn dreams that I had wanted since I was a little girl. I was stalling because I was probably, I was scared of, you know, what could happen if I was successful. My, my confidence was not there until 2000, late 2012. Um, my mom just kept prodding me to, to audition for the voice. And I said, just, okay, fine. I'll do it just to get her off my back. And I walked into Ardent Studios actually back in Memphis was where the, the auditions were. And I wasn't nervous because I didn't, I didn't care if I got on the show or not. I was, a tr- you know, I was a tumbleweed. <laughs> I was a tour and road dog, you know, I was too cool for that show. And, um, I got on the show a month or two later, I was back in Chama in the mountains and, and they said, Grace, we need, we want to fly you out to LA for more rounds of auditioning. And y'all know, a lot of y'all know how that story ends. Um, I got to the final 32. I, was not dealing with the, the limelight or the spotlight very well. Um, I, I just remember partying a lot during those times and my relationships, like my personal life was suffering so much during the time of the voice because I was just going back and forth between two relationships and then drinking heavily and smoking because the producers were like, all you smokers don't quit smoking. It'll actually make your voice sound worse for a spell. It's like your voice goes through a transition phase. And so I didn't quit smoking. Um, and that was actually had become such a part of my, my brand and my identity, like my smoky voice. So I was like, Oh, it's the cigarette. So I should just keep smoking. <sighs> Ridiculous. I remember wishing I could slow down and, but I didn't have it in me. I didn't know how to slow down. Like I didn't know how to just enjoy being contented by a simple life that didn't include going out and drinking. That was a really hard to grasp concept. Like the idea of going sober for one week was daunting. I remember because I really wanted it. I wanted to get sober. I didn't want this like heavy partying life anymore. I didn't, it was just like so draining to 
be going back and forth between two relationships and then like not being able to make up my mind about what I wanted because I just didn't even know what, you know, I, it's like, I didn't even want those relationships. I just didn't even know what I wanted for myself in the first place. So I just like was going teeter tottering between two relationships and then like just relying on the party life to kind of like soothe whatever else was going on. But booze and cigarettes were my, my vices for sure. And, um, after the voice happened, I, I was, feeling good. You know, I was like, okay, my life is going to be going upwards from here. And I cut an album or single, uh, empty rooms and I won some songwriting awards. And then scaredy cat came out my son's studio record and everything felt like it was rising. Like my career felt on the rise. Cause I was getting more press, like really good media coverage. And, um, I started touring super heavily with my band and a lot alone. Once again, all back to like to the Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, that, that's just always been my my scene and going up to also even out to LA and San Francisco, something, something like went off in me. And I, and I found myself in 2015 after all this stuff had happened, like the voice I got off of the voice, I think in 2013, I, so two years later, I was just like, I had like dated around and I was just kind of like partying kind of like having a good time. And, but, but so busy with my touring that I didn't have time for relationships. So I, I got into strength training. I like, fell in love absolutely 100% with strength training. Thanks to my coach, Amanda Evans, shout out back in Memphis. She was just phenomenal. And I just was so inspired. All of a sudden something in me wanted to like take care of myself for a change and to, um, just look better. Like I just felt like I looked worn down and it's definitely spiritually. I was just getting like drained by everything. And, um, didn't really know what I was doing with my music. Granted, I never really knew until like these past couple of years, despite getting into strength training and, and, you know, taking care of myself for a change. I, I actually got, um, back with a, that first ever heartbreak. Um, I just thought maybe things would be different. I thought maybe things would have changed. Um, I thought he had changed. I had for sure changed. I felt like so badass and empowered for the first time in my life from strength training and getting just super strong. Granted, I was still going out and drinking and smoking on the weekends, uh, but just on the weekends, <laughs> it wasn't as like prevalent in my life as it had been. So that was the destruction. That was like all of the things I had been building towards and like working on myself. I went back to something that was so toxic. I'm not judging myself. Like everything happens for a reason. I was meant to learn this lesson the hard way two times. <laughs> um, and it just got so destructive and I just was falling. I was crumbling. I was not working out anymore. I was going back to just partying a lot. Um, and I just said, I'm done. Like, I can't do this anymore. And I remember the day I broke it off. The next day I got a call to open up for Leon Russell. And I just took that as a sign from the universe being like, praise the Lord, girl, you're on the right path. Here's a gift. Boom. Open up for Leon Russell, <laughs> a dueling hall in Jackson, Mississippi. The timing of that, I just took it as a sign that I made the right decision. And from then on, I, I kind of, um, you know, partied here and there, but I was getting kind of back into, um, just some kind of homeostasis. Is that the right word? Like some kind of sort of balance where I was just focusing on my spirituality as cheesy as that sounds. I, 
I, I like craved some sort of higher power at this point in my life because I'd just been through so much with that last relationship that I just needed to be alone. I really did not want to be in a relationship. And that's when I met Jack. <laughs> um, life was, life was really good. It was such a shift. I could feel something inside of me shifting after I met Jack and it was like a maturity. It was like this, okay, Grace, like it's, it's time. Like you've had your fun. You've made some really shitty relationship decisions, really poor health decisions. So this is 2016. I was getting into just, I was kind of feeling fed up with my whole career, like being very Americana focused and that whole scene. Like I wanted to like wipe the slate clean because of all the memories and the hard things that I had gone through with like the drug, the, not the drugs, the drinking and the cigarettes and like just that whole like heavy, hard living. I wanted to just like cut my life off from everything related to that. And that's why I had to like just pivot, hardcore pivot towards like electronic experimental music for a little while. So enter Elliot Ives and Scott Harden in, and in Memphis at, at um, Young Avenue Sound. And we started cutting some like, you know, just real pop, like 808 bass stuff and pop proof, which ended up becoming one of my songwriting competition winners in a couple competitions. It was a song about Jack. I was just spinning my wheels. Like I wasn't doing anything truly like deeply beneficial for Grace yet. Because I wasn't, at this point, I wasn't looking to Jack to help heal me. I had learned that that did, that's never the case. But Jack was just like a really nice, wonderful thing that was happening alongside me. You know what I mean? Um, I was still like drinking. And whenever we go out, like Jack and I, I'd be like the one to like, no, let's just keep, let's go to the next bar and the next bar and the next bar. And like, he'd have to like hunt me down because I'd just like disappear. And like, he'd find me just making friends with a random booth at another bar down the street. And he'd be like, Grace, what are you doing? Like, and it was blackout grace too. It wasn't like aware grace. That's what, that's the grace that, that mostly existed through all those dive bar years. It was not a very present aware grace. It's, it's very like vivid, but it's also very hazy at the same time. I guess I just, I, I, I remember partying really hard while we were cutting all those songs. Cause Jack, I mean, um, Elliot and Scott, they throw down like while they're cutting music, we would be doing shots and smoking and whatever, you know, let's, it was really fun. And I love those guys, but part of me, like, I just still wanted to like, see what sobriety could bring into my life. I just still felt like I was cutting myself short. Um, I wasn't giving myself a benefit of the doubt and just like nurturing my craft enough. It felt like alcohol was something that just exacerbated my self-destructive energy because whenever I drink, it wasn't like, I wasn't like a happy, like sometimes I would be, but for the most part I'd get angry or I'd get like, just like run off and, and just go to, you know, just do my own thing and tear away from my group of friends I'd gone out with. It was not for the most part, like a good grace to be around. <laughs> um, so I could feel like Jack had proposed, and so this whole new identity, like becoming a wife, was in the in the mix of my identity, and that was just a weird transition for me. Just I felt a little stifled, and at the same time, kind of relieved. And so all of this being on my plate, like 
New Year's Eve, 2017, I was at a party and we were having some cocktails and I just sat there and I was just thinking, I'm not looking forward to anything about my career this coming year. Like how screwed up is that? That's sad. I should be excited. Like I get to create music for a living and nothing about 2018 is exciting me. And I'd been listening to a lot of Gary Vee at the time and he got me fired up and, um, I decided to create a song every single day for one year, starting the next day. Like the the decision was that fast. Like the next morning I got up and we were living in a cool loft in downtown Memphis at the time, really high ceilings and concrete floors and like really bright, bright white walls and lots of windows. And it was just such a cool space to ride in. And I remember getting up and looking out and seeing the Mississippi river that first morning and get my coffee. And I just, I hit the live button and I said, Hey, I'm going to go public with a year long daily songwriting challenge. Also, I'm going to be good, do it sober. I'm going to get sober because I knew if I had, if I had kept drinking and partying and all that, it, it would have gotten in the way. Like there's no way I could have written a song every single day and truly gotten better at it with drinking and partying all the time, still on my plate. Like it just didn't, it wasn't worth it anymore to me. I don't know if that really, this whole story ever really technically has a rock bottom, but everybody gets off at different levels of the elevator, you know? And that point was my turning point because music had become something I was resenting because I thought music did this to my life. It made me this self-destructive person. It made me this tortured soul. It made me this unhealthy, just self-involved, you know, just pity party. That is not cool. Music is is like what I've been gifted with. And that's what the alcohol made me believe about my gift. So that was like a big red flag and a big wake up call that I had to stop the way I was living. And, um, I went through that whole year as just a big experiment for sure. But also just the music became my vessel. It was my vent. All my energy was being, you know, funneled into the music. So I didn't have that like excess energy left over, so to speak of for, you know, for just self-destruction because the mind needs something. It needs to be used every day, especially an artist's mind. If you're not using your mind to create every day, it's going to, your mind's going to find something to create on its own. And typically that's self-destructive thoughts and self-destructive behavior. It's that classic cliche persona of the tormented artist because the muse is not being used, you know, and I like to say that with a capital M, I believe it's a higher power experience to create something from nothing to me. It's an honor. It's, It's still hard because I still look back at that persona and I think, man, she was cool. But at the same time, I'm like, man, she was not cool. <laughs> she was so lost. And I, I know there's no glamour and there's no rock and roll and being a sober, healthy artist who now like still I'm gotten back into strength training and I feel like stronger than ever. Also feel empowered as a mother now to an eight month old boy. You know, I just, there are a lot of things in my life that are empowering me. And I know that the artist persona is supposed to be this like 
there's always supposed to be some sort of darkness and there, there is, there's always darkness. There always will be because artists are born with a little more darkness than most people in their souls. You know what I mean? It's like, we're all a little more tormented than most. That's, that's the gift though. I feel like that's, that's kind of what I feel like I was meant to impart is like how to push through all of the, those demons and alcohol was a way to soothe. And it was a way to um, not be me. I was trying to escape who I was and create this new persona because I saw my heroes in songwriting doing the same thing. It just so happens that a lot of their personas were really destructive. I can only hope that this podcast episode helped an artist or two or several out there with their own struggles. Um, as you can see, I went through a very zigzag all over the place journey to get to where I am now. And that's the reality that every artist has to go through this. It's the hero's journey. It's the the struggle and the strife and the triumphs and the self-doubt, you know, building it up to this, this point of like the aha moment, you know, it's just all of this is part of it. And it's, and it's just like a bigger picture kind of story that I, I hope can help some of y'all out there either with sobriety or feeling lost. Um, I am here for you guys. DM me, feel free to on my Instagram. I'm also going to be posting this up on my YouTube channel in video format. So follow me on there. It's just my name, Grace Askew, A-S-K-E-W. And I'll see y'all next week with a special guest telling their own artist journey story. Peace out, my friends. Keep on rolling.